Good morning once again. If you would open your copy of the scriptures to the book of Haggai, chapter 2. This is the word that we'll be hearing today. And when you have it, please stand and follow along with me as I read Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Jehoshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place... I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your people have received your spirit to understand this word. Lord, pierce our hearts and convict us of sin and convince us of your glory and your majesty today, that all who leave the hearing of this word will be changed, having had a vision of you through your word. These things we ask for your glory through Jesus Christ. Amen. And so for those of you who are not familiar with the big, the story of Haggai, let me give you the basic intro. God's people, the children of Israel were chosen by him to be his very special people. And he made a covenant with them that he would be their God and they, and they would be his people and he would care for them and he would love them and he would bless them if They would be careful to keep all his commandments. They were not careful. They turned to other gods. They turned to worship other things. They sought their own desires rather than the desires of the Lord who had covenanted with them. And so God brings all of the promised curses of the covenant upon them. Famine, sickness, death, And most importantly, exile from the land that he had promised to them. He kicks them out. He brings other powerful nations to come in and to destroy them and to remove them from the land. But because God is gracious and merciful and loves his people, after a time, he does a work to bring them back into the land. And he says again, if you will repent and turn to me, I will continue to be your God and you will continue to be my people and you will dwell in this land. So he brings them back into their land. They start to rebuild the temple that was destroyed. And then they stop because of the opposition of the other peoples in the land who don't want to see them come back in here and prosper, and because they desire to build up their own nice houses and not build up the house of the Lord. 
And so God sends the prophet Haggai to come and to stir them up. And God speaks to them through Haggai saying, what are you doing? You are so concerned with your own house and you have no concern for my house, which is why now you are suffering famine and illness and loss and things are not going well for you. It's because you are not looking to me. And so God, with this word, stirs up his people once again, and he turns them back to the work, and they start again to rebuild the temple. And so this is where we pick up the story today. This people who was rebellious and ignoring God and who were stirred up by God to get to the work, now God today again comes to speak to them in the midst of their building, because now there's a situation going on. And God responds to this new situation. So the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to lay out the situation from verses 1 to 3. Listen as I read again. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, so this is about a month after they started building. In the seventh month, on the 27th day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? The situation is that the people are discouraged, and the people are dissatisfied. God has brought them back in. He has caused them to start a work on this new temple, and they are not happy about the new temple. This is not a new feeling. If you would turn to Ezra chapter 3, remember I told you they started building the temple and then they stopped. This is an account of when they first started rebuilding the temple and what happened. Ezra chapter 3, verse 10 to 13. It says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, so that many shouted, so though many shouted for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. What happened was the older Jews who had been in the land before the exile and saw the first temple, which had been destroyed, are looking at the new temple that's being built and thinking to themselves, this is nothing like what we had. This is not like the temple that we had before. They are discouraged. And now they have started building again after a 14-year hiatus, and the same feeling is there. Here the Lord has worked again to stir up the people to build the temple, and it's the same reaction 
Those who have seen the first temple are sad. They are dissatisfied. This is not like what it used to be. Let me give you a picture. Solomon's temple, the first temple, the temple that they are desiring for, was built by 30,000 men of Israel plus 70,000 burden bearers plus 80,000 stone cutters and 3,300 chief officers organizing all of this labor. That's in 1 Kings 5. It was a massive gang of Hebrews building this temple. This house that they're building now, the whole remnant of the people that have come back into Jerusalem is less than 50,000. So you have a crew of almost 200,000 versus a crew of less than 50,000. Temple's going to look a little different. Solomon was the richest and wisest king of all Israel. And at the time when that temple was built, Israel was at the height of world supremacy. Diplomats from other countries were coming into Solomon to see his wisdom and to see his riches and to bring presents to him. Solomon had a relationship with Hiram, the king of Tyre in Lebanon, who could ship him all of these cedars and these wonderful trees and provide him more workers to build this temple. This house in Haggai is being built by a despised people. Nobody even wants them in the land. There's no sort of diplomacy. They don't have a king. In fact, they needed a sponsor to help them out. They needed the Persian king who was ruling over them to even allow them to do work on this temple. Solomon's temple, with the almost 200,000 laborers that he had, they built in seven years. Took them seven years to build it. This house that they're building after the exile, they built in four years with less than 50,000 laborers. It's going to be a very different house. And so those who saw the first house... What's happening now in Haggai doesn't match their expectations of what they thought it was going to be. And this makes them unhappy. This causes them to feel defeated and discouraged. Can you identify with them? Are there things that God has done or brought into your life? You expected one thing, and he gives you another and that causes you to be discouraged or unhappy. I can relate. These people are dissatisfied. Not only are they discouraged, but they're dissatisfied. The Lord says to them, you're looking at this house. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And he who knows the hearts of all men is not asking a question. He's pulling it out of them. I know that you think that this house is nothing. In Zechariah, Zechariah is the prophet who prophesied alongside Haggai. These people are called those who despise the day of small things. God is doing a work and the work appears small and they're dissatisfied with it. Though God had done much, I mean, he moved the hearts of kings to even let them back into Jerusalem. He moved the heart of kings to give them the finances that they needed to bring to build any house whatsoever. But because it's small, they despise the work. They were not content or joyful or thankful as they ought to have been. Can you identify Has God brought things into your life 
or given you blessings, and you're like, man, that's not what I was asking for, Lord. I was asking for this, and you gave me this. And you're not thankful for this, because he didn't have to give you anything. Or you're dissatisfied. I can relate. And so what God does in Haggai chapter 2 is that he speaks to encourage the discouraged and to bring satisfaction to the dissatisfied. And he's trying to protect those who are still happy and zealous about doing the work from being infected by the poor attitude of those who are weeping over his work. And so what we're going to see today, by the grace of God, is how God responds to this situation. What does he say to encourage and satisfy the people? And what we ought to learn for ourselves is where we ought to look to find encouragement and satisfaction. And and here's the short answer. In the face of his people's discouragement and dissatisfaction, our God appeals to his presence and he presents promises. So there's two points in this response. His presence, he says, I am with you, and his promises. This is what I will do. Those are your two points. I am with you. This is what I will do. Now, in terms of interpretation, Haggai 2, 1 to 9 is a difficult text, especially in the second part. The best and brightest scholars have read it and studied it and tried to determine exactly what these statements mean. I've read a fair number of them, and there is a lot of variation in understanding exactly what God is pointing to here. And we're going to look a little bit at those things. But what I want to say to you today is that where our eyes should be first and most firmly fixed is on the things which are undeniable and unmistakable. And that is the power and the person of the God who promises his presence. The power and the person of the God who promises his presence. In God speaking to these discouraged, dissatisfied people, the I is the tie. The I statements that he makes are what hold the meaning of all of this together. He says, I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will shake all nations. I will fill this house with glory. The silver is mine. The gold is mine. In this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Don't look at your circumstances. Look at me, he says. Don't look at your own power or ability. Look at me. Trust in me with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding or perception. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am with you, and this is what I will do. So let's look at these a little closer as we walk through verse by verse. I am with you, verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts. So we're reintroduced again to the major players, 
Zerubbabel, the governor of Jerusalem, descended from the tribe of Judah, a direct descendant of Jesus Christ, the leader of all the people. Jehoshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, the one who is the spiritual leader of the people. These two together are the men that are shepherds over God's flock. And then, of course, all the remnant of the people, those that God had brought back, God is speaking to all of them, calling them out. I'm talking to you. I am with you. Be strong. Be encouraged. I am with you. Who is with them? The Lord of hosts. He says it a number of times in the text, the Lord of hosts. And that word, that phrase should capture your attention. It's a common designation for God in the Old Testament, and it is a picture of power. The Lord of hosts. And this phrase, if you're not familiar with it, will explain for you that funny verse in the second verse of A Mighty Fortress. I'm going to sing it for you. If you know it, sing along. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Dust as who that may be, Christ Jesus it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Lord Sabaoth, that is Lord of hosts in Hebrew. The Greek Old Testament translates it God Almighty, hosts. That word refers to armies. He is the Lord of armies. A more contemporary artist said, I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always at my side. That comes from that phrase, Adonai Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. Get the picture. Psalm 68 says this says the chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands, and the Lord is among them. Jesus in the garden, he's getting arrested. Peter takes action to try to deliver the Lord. He says, do you not know, do you not think that I could at once appeal to my father and he would send me 12 legions of angels? A legion is somewhere between 3,000 and 6,000 non-exact figure, a bunch of them. He commands angel armies. The Lord Father rolls deep, and you don't want to be against him. No one can stand against him. He is Yahweh of hosts. And we see this phrase repeated many times in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, it's in the context of discipline and rebuke. The Lord of hosts says you're being lazy. The Lord of hosts says he's bringing these things upon you because you are not obedient. But now we get it in the context of encouragement. I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. 
That means him, God Almighty, and all of his mighty angels with him, the thousands upon thousands of angels, I am with you. And therefore, in verse 5, he says, According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Fear not. This continues the display of God's power. And in it, we have the mention of the deliverance from Egypt which would call to mind to the listeners how God came to them and he brought them out to Sinai from slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The plagues, the angel of death, the parting of the Red Sea, all these done by the hand of the Lord of hosts. He says, my spirit stands in your midst. In the English translation, it says, my spirit remains in your midst. Another way that it could be translated, my spirit stands in your midst. He is there among you. At the very least, this mention of his, of his spirit would recall their minds to the first structure that they had to build. When they came out of Egypt and God gave Moses the designs for the tabernacle. And he says, go build it and I'm going to give you a man called Bezalel. And I'm going to put my spirit upon him so that he has all skill in carving and engraving and work with these fabrics to build me a glorious house. Here you are building a house again. And the Lord says, my spirit stands among you still there. His spirit is the power for his people to carry out his purposes at all times. We're studying the book of Judges with Pastor Ed. And the judges, as they come to do their mighty deeds to deliver God's people, very frequently it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. And then they did their work. David, the great king of Israel, the one after God's own heart, when he was anointed king, it says the Spirit of God rushed upon him from that day forward. All of the prophets of God, including Haggai, spoke by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God stood to admonish and instruct his people and to show them the way they ought to go. Do not fear, he says, you have my Spirit with you. But what might have been in that verse, the sweetest thing to those Hebrew ears would have been the word of the covenant. Right? Do not fear, I am with you according to the covenant that I made with you when I brought you out of Egypt. And in that covenant, in Exodus 19, starting with verse 5, he says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do not fear, he says, I am with you. My spirit stands among you and you are mine. You are my treasured people. Remember who you are to me and who I am to you and work. Now, that should be enough. That's pretty encouraging. That, That should be enough for them. But by his grace, he gives them even more. Not only his presence, but he grants promises. He actually tells them, listen, this is how it's going to go. Watch this. This is what I will do. Verses 6 to 9, I'm going to take them one by one. Verse 6. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. This is how he encourages them, tells them he's going to do all of this shaking. And this is where interpretation starts to get a little difficult. So we'll take what's obvious first. This is a display, again, of God's power. God made it all, the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the dry land, and he can shake it if he wants to. And he comforts his people by saying this is what he's going to do. He comforts them by saying, I'm going to shake these things. Why? Why is this a comforting word? What does this shaking mean? Well, if you read thoroughly through the Old Testament, you will come to find there is a whole lot of shaking going on. Jerry Lee Lewis, 1958. Right, that, that phraseology occurs a lot. I'm going to show you one in particular, Isaiah chapter 13, verse 13. Now this is in the context of the judgment of Babylon. Israel's enemy. The Lord says, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. This shaking that we hear in the Old Testament is very often used in the context of the judgment on God's enemies. You see it very much in the prophets. Now, usually, it's, it talks about just the earth being shaken, the mountains skipping like rams and the hills skipping like lambs and the mountains being shaken out of their places and God shaking the thresholds of the earth. But in this Isaiah 13, 13, we get both the heavens and the earth. In Psalms, we see it a lot, this language of the shaking of the earth We see it much with relation to the Sinai deliverance and him judging Egypt and getting his people out, the shaking of of the earth. And so that's kind of the baseline for our understanding of what God means when he says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. It's an act of God's power. It's normally an act of God's judgment on his enemies. But there's a verse in the New Testament that actually helps us further to understand what this shaking refers to, but also kind of makes some difficulty for us in terms of our understanding how Haggai's hearers would have understood it. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26, the writer of Hebrews says this, At that time, referring to the giving of the covenant on Sinai. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. That's, that's a quote or more likely a, like a direct allusion to what we're reading in Haggai. And he says, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. 
So this tells us that as God says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth in Haggai, what it's basically referring to is the removal of these shaken things, the heaven, the earth, the dry land, and the sea. And so there's generally two main explanations for what this might mean. Either it's talking about the physical end of the world, where judgment comes upon the earth and it's burned in fire and God creates a new heavens and a new earth for his people to dwell in. He removes all that is old and makes something new. He shakes it all and he builds anew. The other understanding is that what God is referring to is not a literal shaking of the earth, not a literal removal of the heavens and the earth, but the end of the old covenant age where he changes for all time the way people relate to God. It's no longer through the temple system. It's no longer through Judaism, but it's through Christ. And that changes the life of his people here on the earth, and it changes their relationship with heaven, and thereby heaven and earth are shook and forever changed. The old things are removed, and God puts a new thing in place. I've seen a lot of good arguments for both, and I've not landed solidly on either of them. Now, the people that were hearing it in Haggai's time, did not have this revelation in Hebrew. So what were their ears listening for? I don't think they were listening for the end of the world. They're weeping and crying about this temple. I don't think God is coming to them and say, don't worry, I'm going to destroy everything. Actually, I'm going to build up something new. I don't think that's what they're hearing. If they had been reading their scriptures, they should have been expecting a new covenant because the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Ezekiel both said to them, at some point, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like that old covenant that your fathers broke. But I think at a very basic level, the thing they would have understood when God says this is that God is going to do something big. Don't worry about this temple. I've got it all. I'm going to do something magnificent, something huge, something that only I can do. As we go through the rest of the scriptures It sounds very material, at least to me, as I read through over and over, it sounds like what the people would have been hearing is simply down-to-earth truths about this temple that they're building and what God is going to do. Now, because of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26, we know that God had in his mind things that they could not fully comprehend. And because we have the blessing of the revealing of Scripture, we know more than they do. But I would say to you that sometimes, and maybe even often, God says or does things in the Old Testament that means something to the immediate hearers, but that actually bears far more weight than they would be able to pick out at the time. Give you one example. After, after the creation of Adam and Eve, he puts them together and through Moses says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And we go, amen, praise the Lord. This is why he made man and woman. They're going to leave father and mother. They're going to come together. Like what a wonderful thing. Why did he do it? Oh, well, he said, because it's not good for Adam to be alone. They have to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his glory. Boom. Great thing. Praise the Lord. 
Revelation by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5 repeats that phrase, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And the apostle says this mystery is profound. And I say to you that it refers to Christ and the church. And you go, whoa, nobody understood that for thousands of years And then the Lord comes and finally reveals, you know why I made man and woman the way that I made them? Do you know why I instituted marriage? It's not simply for procreation. It's not simply for companionship. It's because I wanted to show you in real life, invisible, physical life, spiritual life is real too, the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. Old words, new revelation, more meaning revealed. Happens very much. So while what the people certainly knew at that time was that God was going to do something big and he was going to do something in their favor. What that thing was, I can't say for certain that they knew. Then when is he going to do it? This is another difficult part. And he says, yet once more, and in a little while. What do we do with that? Well, the the second Peter, the second Peter explanation is the common one, because in second Peter, Revelation tells us that in the eyes of the Lord, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. So when God says in a little while, that doesn't mean a little while like us. We're like five minutes, Lord, what's up? And he's like, yeah, hang on, hang on. It's my little while, not yours. Right, so if we take the end of the covenant explanation, we're talking this little while is 500 years after the speaking of Haggai. If we take shaking of the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land to mean the end of the world, well, we're talking about if it happens tomorrow or in the next five minutes, at least 2,500 years after the speaking of Haggai. But Hebrews 12:26 says it's one of these two things. So, so we've got to figure out what, what little while actually means. Is there something sooner? Right, look to see. Is there something sooner that happened that could have fulfilled that? One that is close is the upheaval of the Persian Empire. So the Persians were ruling over the Jews, and maybe they heard, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, and that means he's going to take this current ruling dynasty, and he's just going to rip them apart. But if that was it, then a little while is 200 years. Still doesn't really fit for us. So the timing is really unclear, sort of like the coming of Christ himself. Right? The, the Lord likes to just make us trust and wait and know that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Don't really worry about the time. It's going to happen in his proper time. It's going to happen in a little while, but maybe not the way that you think it is. Whatever it means in this specifics, the reason why God said it is so that his people would take courage in his power and his action. We get a similar thing in the book of Revelation, particularly the end of it. You read it, and there's all kinds of different interpretations. What are these things? What is the thousand-year reign? What does it mean these two prophets are going to come and be slain? When does all of this happen? A lot of us are really not sure. But the point of the book of Revelation is that Jesus wins. 
The reason for the book of Revelation is not so that we can construct exact timetables. It's to encourage a people who are being persecuted and to say, don't you worry, my people. I got this. I got this. Jesus wins. That's the point. Shaking the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. The next statement, though, the next statement that he makes is one that would hit even closer to their emotional home in this season. Verse 7 and 8, he says, And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And what are these people worried about in this time? What they are worried about is the status of this new temple. We're building it. We've seen the old temple. This temple doesn't look like it's going to be anything like that. (laughs) And the Lord says, no, 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 no. I'm going to shake the nations, and I'm going to bring things in. The silver and the gold is mine. God asserts his own wealth. He asserts his own access, and he says he will shake the nations for it. You remember Egypt? Remember when the Lord brought the people out of Egypt? What He told the Israelites to go to the Egyptians who hated them, said, go ask them for their gold and their jewelry. And they went door to door. Hey, could we have some of your gold? And the Egyptians just handed it over. Like, how does that happen? God shakes them, turned them upside down, shook out all their goods so that his people could go into the wilderness and build a tabernacle for his worship. All right, Solomon and his diplomatic relationships. Where did all the cedar and the materials come for the first temple? God's shaking the nations. All of the wealth of the nations coming into Jerusalem so that a temple for God's worship can be built. And the Lord seems to be saying here, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it again. There is no lack of resources for this house that you are currently concerned about. But the shaking of the nations, again, a difficult interpretation. What does it refer to? There's a number of options. I'll give you four. The first is King Darius's renewal of the decree of King Cyrus. So King Cyrus was the first king in the exile who said, let's let the Jews go back to their home and build their temple. I'm actually going to give them some money. I'm going to give them some resources, send them back, let them do their thing for the worship of their God. Why would he do that? God's shaking the nations. And then they stop for 14 years because they're being opposed by the other people around them. And then God causes another king, Darius, to look back in the records. They said, look at what Cyrus said. Oh, Cyrus said he was going to give them all these things out of the royal treasury. All right, I'm making a proclamation. You better let them Jews build their building. And you better give them all of these finances that they need. God's shaking the nations. And that second decree comes after this prophecy of Haggai. Maybe that's it. Second option would be the building of King Herod. Right? Later on, in like the 10s BC, Herod is ruling over the Jews in Jerusalem, and he says, you know what we're going to do to garner favor with these Jews? We're going to rebuild their temple. And he was sort of a half-Jew himself, so maybe he wanted to have some religious prestige, but he takes the wealth of the nations, right? He's kind of ruling as a puppet king under Rome, 
who has all the power and all the wealth and access to all the nations and Herod under them says, I'm going to rebuild this temple. God's shaking the nations. The temple was pretty impressive that Herod built. Third option, there is an alternate translation of the verse that says, rather than the treasures of all nations shall come in, some will translate it, and they, that is the nations, will come in to the desire of the nations. So desire rather than treasures, rather than the treasures come in, it's the nations coming in to the desire. And those commentators will say, and that desire is Christ. And so what the Lord is saying here is that eventually this Messiah that you're waiting for is going to be standing and all of the nations are going to come in to him. That's a right theological idea, but it's a little difficult to make it fit grammatically. And it's sort of off topic. There, there didn't really seem to be any messianic word in there until now. So I don't know if that fits. Fourth option, and this is the one that I subscribe to, is that you could see it successively. There are prophecies in the Old Testament, you probably heard this before, that have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. There's something that it means to the people here, and God does something here where they would have marveled and said, oh, God kept his word. But then there's something over here that the Lord does later in history that's like, boom, oh, that's it. That's the real fulfillment of this prophecy. It's called, and so there's, there's a, what's the word? The word is called recapitulation, where God presents an idea in a prophecy or a theme in a prophecy that is filled, and then it's filled again, and it's filled again, And it builds up to the final great climactic fulfillment that is the big one. We've seen that a lot with the day of the Lord as we've gone through the prophets this summer. Right, The first time as a new believer, you read through the Old Testament. Every time you see the day of the Lord, you're like, end of the world. Right, He's always talking about the end of the world. As you start to study, you realize, no, day of the Lord, right? Uh, Samaria gets destroyed for their idolatry, day of the Lord. Jerusalem gets destroyed for their idolatry, day of the Lord. Assyria gets destroyed for destroying Jerusalem, day of the Lord. Babylon gets destroyed for destroying Jerusalem, day of the Lord. And we keep seeing these days of the Lord until the day of the Lord that we're all waiting for. That's recapitulation. There's a book, if you want to look at this, called The Problem of the Old Testament by Dwayne Garrett. Really helpful in understanding, getting a grasp on how prophecy works. Check it out if you want to. But the bottom line of what the Lord is saying, the very bottom line, is he's saying to this people, you think this house is nothing, I will make it glorious. I will move whatever I need to do to do it, And I have all the necessary resources. That's the bottom line. And then he makes this grand statement in verse 9. He says, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. 
This little house that you're looking at and weeping over is going to be greater in glory than Solomon's temple. That thing that you're weeping over. What? And as these people are hearing it, I'm certain that they were thinking financially, materially. How is that going to happen? If you're thinking in that vein as you read this text, you could say that Herod's rebuilding of the temple is the fulfillment of this prophecy. If you go online, you Google it, every picture you see will be like, Solomon's temple was like this big, and Herod's temple was like this big. And you go, oh, there it is, right? Glory of Herod's temple, greater than Solomon's, done. But I don't, I don't think that's it. Now, there's no record of how much gold was used in Herod's temple. In Solomon's temple, one commentator I read said it took 285 tons of gold to build that structure. 625 tons of silver and bronze without measure. Like there was so much bronze, they didn't even bother to measure it or count how much there was there. And on top of that, they had the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim above it, the mercy seat of God, and the tablets that were written on by the finger of God himself deposited in the Ark. And the Shekinah glory of God, the brightness of his glory coming to dwell in that temple and fire from heaven when they laid out the sacrifices and completed the building and Solomon prayed and God conferred his pleasure in this house by igniting the sacrifices himself, the very near presence of God. Herod's temple had none of that, none of that. So that can't be the fulfillment of this prophecy. The only thing that assures the fulfillment of this prophecy is the God-man himself taking it upon himself to walk in and set his feet inside that temple structure. There it is, boom, glory of this house far greater than Solomon's house. The presence of the word made flesh, the word that was with God and was God and all things were created through him and for him walked into that temple and taught in that temple and healed in that temple. Greater glory. Emmanuel was in that house. And the people who saw him could say, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. Glory of this house, much greater than the glory of that first house. And then the Lord says, and in this place, I will bring shalom. In this place, I will bring peace. And peace would have been a concept that they would have tied to the temple because of what God said around the building of the first temple. In First Chronicles chapter 22, verses 7 to 10, David says to his son Solomon, My son, I had it in my heart to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold, a son shall be born to you who shall be a man of rest. 
and I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. For his name shall be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Around the building of the first temple, the Lord promised peace. But that peace was temporary. I could imagine the exiles coming back, building this temple that they thought was rinky-dink, saying, well, well, where's the forever throne of Solomon? Right? God promised it. We got no king. Where is that? We have no sovereignty. We have no place. We have no peace. And even after this second temple is completed, there's turmoil in the land. The Greeks come in and make war with the Persians who are ruling over the Jews, and there's war. Then the Greek empire falls apart. Then the Jews take up a little revolution and try to make some noise with the Maccabeans, but that falls apart. They fall under Roman domination. Israel has never had peace in that place from an earthly viewpoint. But the New Testament revelation shows us something greater. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 to 20, it says, Of Jesus, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Great is God's faithfulness. He always does what he says he will do. He said he would bring peace in that place. I think it's interesting to note that he doesn't say in this house. When he's referring to the temple, he says this house, this house, this house, this house. Then he says in this place, I will bring peace. Jesus wasn't crucified in the temple, but he was in the surrounding area, right near the temple in Jerusalem. In this place, I will bring peace. Since therefore we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Lord was speaking about. That's what he was looking to. And isn't that just like God? Isn't that just like him? One, to follow through on every word that he speaks. And two, to manifest his power and his glory at times and in ways that no one would have thought of or conceived but himself. Like those Israelites were not thinking, I don't think, Oh, what he's saying is that God's going to come. He's going to come in human flesh, and he's going to die on a cross and redeem us all, and that's it. I think they were thinking, God's going to come in, he's going to give us a king, and we're going to have our place again, and Jerusalem is going to reign, right? This kind of earthly picture of glory, this earthly picture of the Messiah that many of the Jews stumbled over when Jesus did not come in and start raising Cain with the Romans. They heard the words but they interpreted it wrongly. But glory be to God, his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. And he did it the way that was best. And so now that you've heard this word from the Old Testament and in light of God's revelation of Christ in the New Testament, I have two questions for you to consider. The first question, do you know who he is? Do you know who he is? If not, I can introduce you. If you sort of forgot, 
let me remind you. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He is triune, existing eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all God, all Lord, all eternal, all ruling, one God. He is the lawgiver and the judge. He made you and he set out the ways that are right and true for you to walk in. He made you to display his glory. You have failed him, but he is merciful and full of steadfast love. He is compassionate and forgiving. He receives repentant, sorrowful sinners. He loves his people. He sent the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to suffer the punishment his people deserved on the cross. He raised Jesus from the dead to live and reign forever as God and King. Amen. Question number two. Do you know what he will do? Do you know what he will do? Three short answers, each with an application. First, he, Jesus, will come again in full glory to judge both the living and the dead. The righteous in him to eternal life and those who have denied him and rebelled against him to eternal judgment in hell. Application. If you are unbelieving right now, today, if you have not submitted yourself to the rule and the word of your creator, the Lord Jesus Christ, do it now. Turn and repent and he will receive you. No questions asked. What will he do? Number two, he will sanctify his people. He will conform every believer to the image of his son. Application. If you claim Christ but you're walking in sin, forsaking his word, giving into temptation, turn, trust him, repent. He will receive you and he will strengthen you by his power to grow in holiness. So do not fear. Don't fear your sin. Don't fear the world. Don't fear temptation, but work, fight, for he is with you, and his spirit is in you, if indeed you belong to Christ. Finally, what will he do? He will build his church. God is doing a work in the world for his glory through Jesus Christ. And this work is centered on Jesus Christ and his bride, his gathered people, his body, the church, and this project is not going to fail. This is the promise of God. She, in the end, is going to be presented to Jesus by himself as a beautiful bride adorned for her husband. She will be the new Jerusalem. She will be the place where peace reigns, and he himself, the Lord God, Jesus Christ, will be in her midst forever application. Do not fear. Do not fear. He has said to you what he will do. Don't be discouraged by outward circumstances. The world appears to be crumbling, and it is, but Jesus is making a new one. The wicked appear to be winning. They will lose, 
In fact, they have already lost. They are already in subjection under his feet. They don't appear to be in subjection under his feet. They don't know yet that they are in subjection under his feet. It doesn't look like it. And so we tend to forget that all things are under the feet of Jesus Christ. He currently reigns and rules everyone and everything. And so if you belong to that king, if you belong to that God, you need not fear or be discouraged. He is with you always. So work, fight, strive to walk in his ways. Your life may not look as glorious or as wonderful or as peaceful or as joyful or as fulfilling as you thought it might look. But he is with you. He loves you. He has made promises to everyone that is in Christ that will not fail. Look to him and get to work. The church doesn't look the way you want it to. He said, I will build my church. You come and you look at the church and you go, meh, doesn't look very impressive to me. Don't be one who despises the day of small things. Don't go look at churches that are preaching the gospel and preaching it faithfully faithfully, and look down upon it because they don't have this or that flair or this or that knack that you think should certainly be in God's church. God knows what should be in God's church, and he puts in God's church what's in God's church, and he puts you in that church to work. So work. Don't look at what you see. Trust in the Lord. And do what he calls you to do. So if you yourself today are discouraged or dissatisfied, remember who the Lord is and what he said he will do. He is faithful. He will do all that he has promised, even if today things don't look so good. He is good. He never changes and he never fails. To him be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. 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 Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to praise you and worship you and hear from your word. Lord, would you send us from here encouraged, looking not at ourselves, but looking to you, because you, Lord, have revealed yourself as great and mighty the lifter of our head, the refresher of our weary bones, the lifter of our drooping hands, and the strengthener of our weak knees. So Lord, be that for us today as we come to you in faith. This I pray through Jesus Christ, by the power of your Spirit which stands among us. Amen.